everyone. Welcome to another Bounty episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre, with me is Z, and today we have some C-Surf and SSRS stuff, an LPE in uh, pre-tunnel VPN, and a Node BB Zero Day. And before we get started, thanks, Belika, for the 15 months. Really appreciate it. So we'll get into our first topic here, which is um, actually request smuggling in Apple. Um, some Apple domains such as business.apple.com, school, and uh, Maps Connect. Um, really quick topic to start off with. Um, Apple had the classic request smuggling issue where their front-end server would parse the content like header uh, in request for the size of a request and kind of ignore or try to censor out the transfer encoding header. Um, and the back-end would end up using that header if you could get it passed. Um, they did have to do some trickery to get that forwarded. Uh, they had to inject a new line into that transfer encoding header to get it to get it passed. But um well, so yeah, they indicate they... A, a new line and a space in that header name. So they do that right before the uh, colon um, in the header. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, new line and space. They don't yeah, really go enough. into why. It is an interesting case. My guess is just that the front-end server was like parsing through, looking for transfer encoded, or encoding, planning to remove that so the back-end wouldn't parse it. And... You know, they kind of had either some fuzzy parsing on the other side. It is interesting that this did still work, because even on the back end, you'd kind of expect this to just be, like, some sort of invalid header. Oh, no, it is a weird case when you have, like, the new line. Well, okay, so actually, I guess that is new line, but not RN. No carriage return. So, it is just half of it, so that could be why if they then strip, like, non-printables or something. Um, that could be related to it. Yeah, so I was kind of thinking the same thing, but um, yeah, it's just some kind of synchronization issue between the parsing on the front and the back end, which, uh, you know, I guess isn't too surprising since um, the request smuggling is here in the first place. But yeah, um, so they could use that to smuggle a header using chunked encoding with zero length chunk kind of standard um, request smuggling at that point. Uh, once they had that, they they created the POC where they would smuggle a GET request to the static docs endpoint, which in this domain's case would redirect using the host header value, which because you could control the headers, you could specify that to go to your server, which would get users redirected there. Um, the impact was a bit higher than just that, though, um, because they were able to poison the response queue to get random responses sent to unintended users, which is kind of another thing that we've seen before with request smuggling. Um, and since those responses would contain set cookie headers, it's possible to leak data and, and take over accounts with, with no user user interaction needed. So yeah, they kind um, of did the impact that. is a bit higher there than their initial POC. And uh, yeah, go ahead, see. Yeah, they kind of did that. Um, I think they call it in here a Q poisoning attack. I haven't heard it called that name, but we have seen this... Um, uh, sort of attack before. I I want to say it was with, like, GitHub or something. I don't necessarily know if we covered it, or I think it might have just been covered in, like, James Kettle's uh, talk about request smuggling at DEF CON last year. Um, but basically what ends up happening is when you end up sending in a... or smuggling in a complete request. Uh, so one way you can abuse these request smuggling attacks is to have a partial request and then somebody else's data comes in as, like, the post... Um, the post body of it or something, so they complete your request, and you just kind of end up with uh, getting access to whatever information was in there. 
um, in in their request. Well, with this sort of attack, what ends up happening is by smuggling in a complete request, um, all of the following requests end up kind of being out of order. So the front end is kind of seeing like one request comes in, one request comes out. Well, since you sent two requests into the back end, there's going to be two re responses coming out, which means the next person coming in, um, that second response to your smuggled request, um, that is actually going to go to whoever that user is. And then the response to that, you know, legitimate request is actually go going to go to whoever like the next user is that comes in and it's going to keep going on and on and on. And everybody's going to be getting the cookies of the user who made the request. If there's cookie being set, at least, um, of the user being set, um, uh, before their request. So it's basically leaking it continually to everybody after and can really screw up with a lot of things. If I remember correctly, it was either GitHub or GitLab where, uh, this was done that we last, I think, might have talked about it. Um, or at least fairly noteworthy attack. So it is interesting to see it here also. Yeah, I know for a fact we talked about it before, but it's been a long time. Because, um, like, I'm trying to think of when the last time we covered request smuggling like this in detail was, and it's been a while. Well, so I it, suspect it's kind of cool to revisit it. I suspect it might have been during one of our summer streams when we were just covering the DEF CON talk. Yeah, it could have been. That that would make sense. That's, we that's watched in the timeline uh, in my head. Yeah, we watched that one request smuggling one. So I think it might have been during that. Either way, they went for that route on the attack, obviously leaking a lot of information there. Um, and yeah, got a nice $36,000 bounty out of it. They also kind of have right at the end, they were able to bypass access control rules on this internal directory. Um, as the front end would block it, but the back end would let the request through. Yeah. So as you said, uh, 12k bounty for each of the domains, which totaled to 36k, so pretty nice payout for the researcher here. Yeah. Alright, so uh, up next we have a, quote, double-edged uh, SSRF um, that was found in an anonymous website by Yassine Abuker. Um, apologies if I, I said that wrong. Um, and I'll let Z get into this topic. Yeah, and this one, I'll call it double-edged largely because it has kind of a client-side and a server-side impact. Oh. Funnily enough, last last episode I think was we were covering that uh PDF cross-site scripting thing, uh where he had this cross-site scripting kind of having a server-side impact, if I recall. Or I think that might have been a couple episodes ago. We were covering that and I was saying, like, okay, you know, PDF export. I mean, it definitely exists in applications, not super common. This is a weird scenario to be in. This one, you know, is again in a PDF exporter. So this time they've got on the API, this API UI export, export page, um, format PDF, and they'll actually email it to the user. Uh, they provide whatever email parameters, and it just takes in this location parameter, which is supposed to point to whatever endpoint you want to see, and it literally just sends you a screenshot via email of whatever location you're providing it. So what they figured out, though, is that that would also work um, against authenticated endpoints. So they didn't actually give uh, one of the example authenticated ones, but um, or that I recall. But, um, you know, just imagine, like, you know, setting the location to your profile information or something like you could see what the actual user is. Um, it would basically 
on the server side perform an authenticated request as your user, and it did that by including a couple of headers. Um, here, the XCH auth API token email. So basically, request comes in, they look at who made it, add these headers onto it, and um, they would add those headers without really any consideration for are you actually making a request to one of their own endpoints. Uh, so they were able to uh, basically point the location. They did have to use the kind of at trick to change where it's change the domain that's going to, but um, use basically use that. And um, when the request would come to your server, you would see these headers being at. So you had the client side impact of being able to leak another users, and this is hitable with like a C surf. So you can cause another user to hit the same endpoint. Um. And that would leak their API token and email, meaning you can then use the API as that user also. So that was kind of an interesting aspect of it. But because this was also doing screenshots of the pages, they started looking at the internal pages that they might be able to hit. And I think kind of the crazy one they hit here was this redasher. Um, just kind of a redash subdomain. And what it had was the email and password in plain text auto-saved into the login field. Um, and I'm not exactly sure why, you know, this password field wasn't, you know, type password or why they're yeah, auto-filling the credentials. Um, but they were. And so you could take a screenshot of this page and get credentials with that. Um, and that they found out that... insane that that worked. Like, <laughs> there's just no reason for that to work. Yeah, I mean, that, that's just kind of lucky. I mean... I've seen similar, like, I have seen that in some corporate environments where they'll have some proxy that automatically adds in credentials. Not quite like this, but like a similar concept where it would, uh, the front or the reverse proxy would basically just fill in some forms for you. Um, not like this, but I, I've seen a similar thing. So, like, I could imagine where, what somebody was thinking with this, but that's not the right way to go about it. Like, it is an issue no matter what. Um, but, yeah, so they had that. They obviously found a lot of other internal API points, but I think this redash login page is just kind of the crazy one. Yeah, I did want to comment a little bit on how they ended up finding um the redash dashboard and like a link to it, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, basically they just did some open source intelligence on GitHub and found like this link uh, or this subdomain being referenced somewhere. I just thought that's kind of cool because we don't really see OSN being used too much in a lot of these posts, but um, it was helpful here for discovering that internal endpoint. Um, from there, they were able to discover a bunch of other ones too, like Kibana and whatever. But like he said, the, the redash one was, most insane one of the bunch for sure uh in terms of like the impact and what you could do with it so yeah and i mean the uh the fact that it's adding those couple headers that can then be exposed to the third party domain so the attacker's domain like that does make this also an interesting ssrf also i think um it's an it's a somewhat interesting scenario to be in i mean adding oftentimes when we see this it's um it's been, it's adding like the server's API token, so it can just kind of do everything and very privileged. In this case, it's like the specific users, which it feels at least a little bit different, a little bit of a different use case. Um, and just interesting to see that one. Uh, so like I did find. Oh, go ahead. 
I was just going to say, Bleak mentioned in chat, uh, so, so many companies leak their internal domains and, and set up addresses. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't surprise me too much. Um, I could be, I could see it being something that they don't really care that much about. They're like, okay, it's privileged off anyway, who cares? But when you get into an SSRS like situation like this, that's when it starts to matter. Um, but I mean, yeah, the developers, like I said, I'm not too surprised. Yeah, like generally a lot of developers kind of know they shouldn't be putting that information out there, but sometimes it's just a lot easier, like Stack Overflow. I once had an entire engagement that was just like, find all the information about our internal stuff that you can with. OSN. Like, that was the whole thing. It wasn't... There was no... Well, we did have a second part of the engagement with more traditional testing, but a large part of it was just look at the OSN and find things. And I mean, a lot of developers, it's just you know, maybe um they're copying logs out from an error or something and just things slip through in that way. Um, Either not thinking about or just not caring to clean up because... um. You know, sometimes it's like you'll see the host name in a terminal prompt, and you only see the host, like the first part of the host name, not the entire host, so you can't necessarily associate with the company, but other information gives that away. Um, there's a lot of ways it leaks, like, I mean, there's a lot of questions on Stack Overflow that leak internal information. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it shouldn't happen. Like you said, I think a lot of people look at it as... You know, this is privileged off anyhow. Like, who cares if they know about it? They can probably figure it out some other way, which is also true. Um, there's, It would be a hard thing to completely prevent. I mean, copying logs out or something can just be a little bit easier. There are, there are some things on that, but it, it does feel like one of those kind of low-hanging fruit. Doesn't feel like a huge issue. It's just useful to the attacker, but isn't itself an issue, so gets looked over. Yeah, um, sorry, was there something you were going to say before I interjected with that? It sounded like there was, but... Oh, I was just going to say, and that's why I liked uh, this SSRF, because of that client side impact, too. I didn't have anything substantial to say. Oh, fair enough. Alright, cool. Uh, so we'll get into an LPE through the uh, pre-tunnel client. Uh, so this was documented by Rhino Security Labs. Um, <clears throat> this was an arbitrary file write as system and a path bug in pre-tunnel VPN, which is mostly an enterprise VPN for connecting cloud environments with site-to-site links and remote user access and stuff like that. Um, and it wraps around OpenVPN, which is a pretty common and well-known client. Um, the arbitrary file write happens through the OpenVPN profile, which gets created when uh, by importing a config into pre-tunnel. Um, and OpenVPN will get ran and use that profile as system. Um, they do try to sanitize the configuration file of any dangerous OpenVPN directives when uh, importing it. Um, but an attacker can just overwrite the o- VPN file directly anyway. <laughs> so um, well, now, kind of. Like, um, so it sounds like said the arbitrary write happened with that, and that's not quite true. Um, well, no, it happens a little bit later. Yeah. But okay. I was about to. Get I'll let you keep going. Okay. Um, I did also want to mention before getting into that, though, that Pretunnel also does set the security script one flag. Um, so that so even though you could use some of the dangerous open VPM directives, um, you can't execute external commands directly. Like it's not that easy um, to privesc. Uh, but you can use the log directive for specifying an output path for logging output. Um, 
and you can specify this path to whatever you want. Now, you don't control the full contents that get written out, but it is pretty easy to get controlled content in the log through like credentials or whatever. Um, so that kind of gives you this arbitrary write, or semi-arbitrary write, I guess, since you don't fully control the contents, um, which you could use to write into the uh, pre-tunnel VPN program files. Um, and they kind of chain this with another bug, which is the fact that OpenVPN will use IP config to try to get some network information when it runs, but it invokes IP config without using the absolute path, which is kind of a common issue we used to cover quite a bit, though we haven't done a little while. Um, and the reason that's a problem for those not aware with how Windows works when it searches for executables to run is it'll kind of, it follows this certain hierarchy for looking for an executable. And one of the first places it'll look is in the immediate folder before it'll look in any of the system paths. So if you just call ipconfig and don't call it with the absolute path to the system ipconfig, um, if one is already present in the directory, it'll execute that. It'll That'll kind of take precedence. Um, so by using the arbitrary write to write the ipconfig batch file into the pre-tunnel program files, um, they can take advantage of this other issue where it'll end up running the uh, your fake IP config instead of the real one. Um, and then obviously you have execution as system, which is a pretty big privesque. So yeah, kind of a two-part attack there. Um, but the the arbitrary file write is really what allows it to be taken advantage of. Yeah, I mean, arbitrary file write tends to be a pretty powerful primitive to have when we're talking about having our file write as system. Um. There was that little bit of a race on it, so you're talking about uh, the program data file. So, the usual flow, you import a configuration that goes into your app data folder. Um, and then when you actually want to run or connect with it, it then copies it, sanitizes it into the program data directory, and then executes OpenVPN. So... That's where you can start trying to overwrite it. You do only have a short window of time to actually overwrite it because it's going to write its file and then execute OpenVPN. So you kind of get it in between that moment. Um, so there is a little bit of a race there, but you just shouldn't let that be written to in general by like any user. Um, maybe what would have been better if they put that in their uh, program files rather than program data. Um, but yeah, that... That's just one detail I think you kind of skipped over. Um, it was a race to overwrite it. Yeah, so they, they had a demo, like, GIF or whatever in the post where they were showing, like, connecting and um, how they might have to do it a few times to, to kind of get that race to work. So, yeah, it's worth calling out for sure, and I did kind of skip over it. But um, there was there's multiple issues here that allowed this chain to work. Um even though, you know, the title only indicates there's like that one file write bug, there's like three issues here that I could count that uh, allow this attack to take place, so. Well, the title yeah. is just local privilege escalation, so that kind of, it's the whole chain to do that. Yeah, fair enough. Alright, so uh, we'll get into our last topic here, which is a bug in NodeBB, and uh, I'll let Z take this one away as well. And just adding on to the last one, Bleak mentions you can just write a system wrapper DLL in the folder, and on the next start, the DLL will run. Yeah, I mean, with the system write, there are other ways that you can exploit it. Um, this one in particular, they went ahead and targeted just the um, uh, 
uh, just the config, or basically just what's going to be present for this one, not requiring the whole reboot and stuff. But I mean, it's fair to call out because yeah, there, there's like I said, arbitrary system is a very powerful primitive to arbitrary write as system is a very powerful primitive on Windows. Well, on anything. All right, so jumping back to the Node BB bug. Um, this one was kind of an interesting way of abusing single sign-on, where what I'd say the root of this one is, is the fact they're not really using, um, sometimes you'll see a state variable being passed around. Um, effectively, by not using that, it becomes C-surfable, which then creates a situation where a user can uh, trick another user into linking their, the basically the wrong account with their account. Um, jump back. The whole attack here basically comes down. You have your attacker account. Um, they go through the normal SSO sign-in process of, or not sign-in, but, um, uh, the linking process. So presumably you have an account and you're linking like Google or something to it. Um, and when you get the callback coming through, which actually contains that authorization code, um, basically intercept that request so it doesn't actually hit the server and it's not going to associate that with you. So if you then get another user to make that request, so standard C-surf thing, it's just the gets, you can maybe put in image or something on a random site, get a user to visit, then the application, in this case Opera's forms, will see that callback code and just look like, hey, what account is currently logged in? Okay, let's uh, check what, what, um, uh, what Google account this is, and basically associate the accounts that way. Um, you're basically tricking it by uh, not completing that request. Had they used the state token here, that would have been at least one way to detect this, because that state shouldn't have been predictable. Um, I don't know, I, I thought this was an interesting attack. I don't think we've covered it. I mean, it's not a new attack. This isn't a novel way of abusing SSO. I just don't think we've covered any scenario like this on on the podcast before? I think we've seen similar, like very similar cases with codes used in other contexts, like maybe well, like I want to say like maybe password reset code. type stuff. Code in general, yeah. Um, yeah, like I've, I I can think of similar scenarios, but not exactly this one with single sign-on. I think you're right. Yeah, I thought it was interesting to see, largely because I thought, you know, using state was a pretty well-accepted practice at this point. Um, you provide a state, it sends a state back with the code, validate state before you actually go on with the code. Um, so it surprises me that they were vulnerable to this, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a straightforward attack. It's kind of what you can do if you're abusing the lack of state or basically see surfability here. Um, and fairly straightforward. There's a bit of interesting background here with the bug as well, because um, NodeBB was informed of this issue previously um, in their bounty program in June of 2018. And it seems it was already fixed once before. Um, I don't think we, I don't think they link to the report, do they? No. So I don't think we really have many issues on that. They just kind of say like it was reported. Um, but then in early 2021, they had some kind of refactor, which reintroduced this bug. So. Uh, you know, the, the bug was fixed or it was reported 
uh, years ago, and then it was fixed, and then it was reintroduced again, and now it's been fixed again. So a little bit of an interesting history there. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't think we really have many of the details, um, but... I mean, I think we have enough of the details, I guess. I guess we could have gone commit surfing to go find the actual patch that, uh, well, removed it or reintroduced the bug, which might have been interesting to do, but, I mean, the fundamental details are there about the attack, at least. Yeah. Emily kind of mentions a kind of a you know funny scenario where a same developer looked at it and said, "What is this? Let me put back my old code." Like, yeah, could could have been a situation like that. It'd be pretty funny, but yeah, I, I'd be a little bit curious. I kind of wish we did commit surf it a little bit, just because I, I'd be curious how they fix it the first time and then how they would have reverted that. It seems like something that you would kind of want to keep in mind in a refactor, but you know, uh, what do I know? Yeah, I, guess? I, I mean. Again, I it really depends on how they did the fix. Like I said, I keep referring to the state. Um, they might have been checking something else. Uh, there are some other ways it could be done. So, I mean, maybe they just you. Well, yeah, I don't really want to speculate too much without seeing the code. So, I'll just say it happened. Yeah, there we go. We'll leave it at that. All right, so... um. That's all the uh, topics that we have for this episode, so I guess we'll wrap it up there. Um, thank you, everyone who tuned in. The VOD will be up on YouTube and Spotify and other platforms tomorrow. Uh, remember to check out our Discord and follow us on Twitter. Links for those are on our site or in the chat. And uh, we'll, we'll hope to see you again in the binary episode tomorrow, which is at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. We'll see you then.